0: Welcome back to Out of the Cold, the podcast that dives deep into unsolved and solved cold cases in North Texas. I'm Deanna Boyd. So when I last left you, we were delving into the unsolved murder of Megan Beth Johns. If this is the first you're hearing of Megan's case, stop and go back and listen to episode 13, part one of her case. Now, Megan was a beautiful young woman who'd endured so much heartbreak in her short life. The divorce of her parents, the death of her mother to cancer when she was only 17, and a several-year-long struggle with alcohol and drug addiction. But by October 1994, 29-year-old Megan seemed to have her life on track. She'd been clean five years, she had a great job working as a secretary at a brokerage firm, and she spent her weekends doing what she loved best— working with troubled children at the Promise House, an emergency shelter in Dallas for homeless and runaway youth. But when she is found murdered, stabbed multiple times inside her Irving apartment on October 5, 1994, Irving police are left wondering whether Megan's past and her continued compassion to help others going through similar struggles could have played a part in her murder. Her friend Joy acknowledges that Megan had many friends from all walks of life and judged no one.
1: She didn't care what you had, what you didn't have. She didn't, you know, she, she just didn't care what you were going through. She didn't care if you were sober, or if you were used. You you. She didn't care. She loved everybody unconditionally. She really did.
0: She was just she was super at that. But she doesn't think Megan would have let just anybody into her apartment. Visit them at their place, sure, she says, but not let them into hers. Obviously, whoever killed Megan had taken some time searching her apartment afterward. In her bedroom, police found her dresser drawers still open with clothes spilling out onto the ground. Even her bathroom cabinets and drawers had been opened and rifled through. But to their knowledge, only a few items were actually stolen, including a VCR and a piece of jewelry. Items that investigators theorized could have been sold by Megan's killer for some quick cash to buy drugs. Now today, if electronics are taken, and police can figure out the serial number, they've got online databases where they can just plug in that serial number and figure out if the item's been pawned someplace and where. But back in 1994, no such databases existed for law enforcement. Officers had to hit the streets.
2: So, one of the things I did was I sent out um, assisting detectives and other people that were working pawn shots at the time to check pawns. For, and we did it manually. Every one of them in the city, uh, and, and at the time, Irving had a lot of pawn shops. We checked a lot of them in Dallas, uh, but we were limited of how far we could go. So we checked them periodically for this VCR, which never turned up.
0: Another item initially believed missing from the apartment was Megan's set of keys. Now, Megan's car had still been outside the apartment complex, But remember, her front door was locked when apartment management conducted a welfare check. Had Megan's killer taken the keys and locked the door behind him when he left the apartment? So when Rowan joins the investigation a couple days after Megan's murder, he quickly learns that, in fact, the keys were not missing. Rowan had previously been a narcotics investigator, and from those days, he knew that a lot of people who use drugs tend to hide their drugs or valuables in either the refrigerator or the freezer. So he starts looking through Megan's refrigerator.
2: So I'm going through a refrigerator, and I found her lunch in the refrigerator. Made me think, well, she made her lunch before the night before, before all this happened. I looked in the sack, and there's her keys. So she put her keys in the sack so she wouldn't forget her lunch. So that then now makes me think, okay, now there's gotta be another set of keys.
0: So Detective Rowan starts to zero in on apartment complex employees. He's worked with management to get a list of all maintenance workers that would have had access to keys to unlock Megan's apartment. One, in particular, stood out.
2: One of the maintenance guys had been in her apartment a couple times. And he was a young guy, and he had a little bit of a past. So I looked at him pretty hard.
0: Now, things weren't looking good for this employee, First, he hadn't returned Megan's key after his last visit to do some work inside her apartment in the manner that keys were normally returned at the complex. Second, investigators would actually find his fingerprint inside Megan's apartment.
2: When the crime scene guys originally found that print, they thought that, okay, we found the guy, this guy. I mean, he's, he works here, he has access. And But when I started looking at the print itself, uh, even though he was still the suspect at the time, I learned that it was not a it was not a transfer print, light print that you lifted. It was a print that was embedded in paint that when he would paint the place.
0: Still, Rowan sought to have the maintenance man polygraph by Eric Holden, a man just as well known among law enforcement agencies for his interrogation skills as for his polygraphs.
2: I heard him taking there and he didn't this kid didn't hesitate. And uh, he took the polygraph and passed it. I, checked, I printed him, checked him against that palm print that I found, didn't match. To, at that point, with the technologies we had back in the mid-90s, I was able to clear him as a suspect.
0: Now, back in 1994, there wasn't much police could do with that partial palm print, other than compare it to potential suspects. Back then, APHIS, the Automated Fingerprint Identification System, only accepted fingerprints for comparison with other unknown and known prints in the database. Palm prints wouldn't be included in APHIS until seven years later.
2: I was fingerprinting and palm printing every person I came into contact with, even the dad. He, I asked everyone for palm prints and fingerprints. I had the crime scene guys manually look at every one of these people, palms. I knew if I could ever find that palm print, I could hone in on that person.
0: So when APHIS finally did start accepting palm prints years later... Police made sure the palm print found in Megan's apartment was entered. And though the database is supposed to check it continually against other palm prints in the system, Rowan isn't taking any chances. He's also requested the palm print be checked manually every year. So far, there's been no match. Investigators would explore other various avenues. They interviewed employees at the brokerage firm. They interviewed people who Megan would have had contact with from the Promise House and her Narcotics Anonymous meetings. They talked to neighbors at the Apple Apartment Complex. In all, Detective Rowan estimates he and other detectives interviewed 50 to 70 people. Some were looked at more closely. That included a man that Megan had previously dated. There was also the father of a young girl whom Megan had met at the apartment complex pool. When the girl later went to Megan's for dinner, she brought along her father. The man, who Rowan says had his own checkered past... Made her uneasy, and she made it clear she wasn't interested in anything romantic. But each interrogation, polygraph given, and print comparison made returned nothing.
2: Yeah, there was probably uh, at least twelve to fifteen people that I looked at real hard. And then out of that fifteen, there was probably probably narrowed it down to three or four that we all had theories. Well, wow, this this has got to be our guy. But then you you get to a point where you can't prove it, and you've got to go, well, I, I can theorize all I want, but I mean, I've got to be—we're in the business of proof.
0: So when no arrest is made, it's natural for family and friends to try to come up with their own theories of who may have killed Megan. And it didn't take long for some suspicions, even that of Megan's father, to fall on Megan's brother, Brian. Now, addiction and stints in prison had separated Brian from his sister for years, But in the months before her murder, the two had actually reconnected. Brian had been paroled from prison in August of 1993, just 14 months before Megan's murder. He was living in Austin and says he was sober and doing really well. He had a job at a restaurant and was paying his bills.
3: She had just got an apartment there in Irving. And she was the only family member that reached out to me and says, hey... Come up here and visit me. You know, I should to show you my new apartment. And, you know, I went up there and we're looking through all family pictures and just having a great time.
2: Brian
0: says the only concerning thing he recalls about that visit was Megan mentioning a man whom she believed was watching her.
3: She said, Brian, she says, I think this guy is stalking me because, you know, this car keeps going by and I keep seeing him all the time. Say, you know, was well, do you know who it is? And she said, I'm not too sure. And then I said, Well, you know, I'm in Austin, you know, it's gonna take me a few hours to get up here, but you know, you know, I'll come if you need me, you know. And that, that was that was pretty tough, it kind of freaked me out, you know. But there's nothing really, I was helpless, you know, because I lived down here in Austin, you know.
0: Brian was at work in Austin when he would learn that his sister had been murdered,
3: I was flipping steaks at a steakhouse. And my boss came up to me and he says, hey, your dad's on the phone. This is a real important call. He says, you might go wanna go in the bathroom and talk to him. He told me this. She told me she got killed and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And I, I, left, I left work and I, and, I, and I went up there as, as as soon as I found out that she got killed. And I told my dad, I said, I said, I'm going to go to Urban County jail. He's like, why? And I think I texted you that. You couldn't understand why. I said, because I'm going to get this person.
0: But there'd be no one to get. Brian's relationship with his father was already strained before Megan's murder. But things seemed to get worse after Megan's death. While in town for his sister's memorial service, Brian stayed a couple of nights at his father's home. He said his father made it clear that he didn't trust him.
3: When I was there, and he said, I'm locking the door and I'm going to let you know I have a pistol in here. I'm like, dude, are you crazy?
0: Dr. Donnell Johns died in 2002 from complications from heart surgery. Susan Johns, Dr. Johns' third and final wife, had not yet married the Dodger, but had been living with him in a house they'd bought together when Megan was murdered. Susan didn't wish to be recorded for the podcast, but agreed to talk to me by phone. She remembered she'd stopped for a cocktail after work when Donnell called her, asking her out of the blue how she liked cats. She told him she liked cats fine, to which he asked her to drop by the store and get a litter box. When she questioned why, an emotional Donnell told her that Megan had been murdered and that Megan's cat Sybil would now be living with them. Susan said Megan's death left Donnell, or Donnie boy as she called him, devastated. When he'd heard from someone that police were questioning Megan's former boyfriend, she said he confronted the man in the parking lot of the police station. Brian says his dad had reportedly assaulted the former boyfriend. Susan recalls being told that Donnell had simply leapt at the former boyfriend and tried to land a punch, but failed. She says Donnell was out of his mind after Megan's death, looking for somebody to blame. That his suspicions would fall on his own son is true, Susan says. Susan said her husband had previously told her stories about Brian being violent in his youth. Brian disputes he was ever violent and says it was his father who was the abusive one. Whatever the case, Susan remembers Brian visiting their home for the memorial. She said Donnell was so afraid of his son that he barred the bedroom door so that Brian couldn't enter while they slept. Rowan said more than one person pointed the finger at Brian as a possible suspect and that he was brought in for questioning. Brian says he took it so personally that anyone would even suspect him. He said he loves Megan and he would never harm her, and he feels like his dad, police, and others who suspected his involvement were simply holding his past against him.
3: My sister, I would kill my sister. What are y'all, y'all crazy? Y'all think I killed my sister? Y'all out of your mind.
0: Brian thinks some people were also suspicious of him because Megan had listed him among three beneficiaries on a life insurance policy she had through work. The life insurance policy was for $21,750 to be split three ways between Brian, Brian's son Kevin, and Bridget, Megan's little half-sister. Brian says he remembers Megan telling him about the policy and how he just laughed it off.
3: When she told me this, I was like, girl, you're going to live longer than I am. That people
0: would think he'd kill his sister for seven thousand dollars is unbelievable to Brian.
3: When I got that money, you know, my dad said he needed money for the headstone. I sent him twenty five hundred dollars check, you know, whatever. We need more money. I'll give it all to you. I don't, I don't care about that money. It bothers me that people would think that. It has something to do with it. yes.
0: So Irving police had obtained records from Austin, trying to pinpoint Brian's whereabouts around the time of Megan's murder. They compared his palm print to that left behind in blood, and Rowan again sought the interrogation and polygraph skills of Eric Holden. He says Brian passed the polygraph, and nothing connected him to the crime scene.
2: I'm, I'm sure I made it pretty mad because I probably went at him pretty hard at the time. I explained to him, I'm trying to eliminate people so I can move, move on. So he cooperated, uh, and I was able, I think, to eliminate him.
0: Despite this, Megan's father and some others apparently were not convinced. When I asked Susan why Donnell was so convinced that Brian was involved, she said it stemmed from his last conversation with his daughter. Donnell had been the last one to talk by phone to Megan on the night before she was found murdered. Susan remembers that she and Donnell were in bed watching Jurassic Park, which had just come out on TV for the first time, when Megan called that night. Susan says she was a little annoyed because she really wanted to watch the movie, and back then you couldn't pause it, and she kept elbowing Donnell to hurry up. She says it had been a short conversation, and that Megan had told her father that she was waiting for someone, but was elusive about just who she was meeting. They ended the conversation with exchangings of I love yous. So Donnell apparently came to believe that it might have been Brian that Megan was waiting for. Susan says he had apparently previously made it clear to Megan that he didn't think she should have any contact with her brother. But after Brian began doing better, Megan had given her brother another chance. If she'd been meeting with him, it's likely not something she would have wanted to share with her father, Susan said. So desperate to learn the truth, Donnell hired a private investigator to look into Megan's death. Obsessed is how Susan described him. He kept a large frame photograph of Megan on his fireplace mantle. He talked about her often. And Susan still remembers how he'd sometimes walk out on a hill on their large property and just howl with pain. Rowan would talk frequently to Megan's dad.
2: Her and her dad didn't have the best of a relationship, but he loved Megan. I mean, it was obvious. And I wanted to solve this case so bad for him. I mean, of course, you want to solve them all. But I wanted to... Uh, cause it, it, just, it was one of those things that you just wanted to do it for him, because uh, he was so nice.
0: He said Ellie even asked him once if a friend he had with the FBI could take a look at the case. Rowan was happy to comply. After getting permission from the chief, Rowan met with the FBI employee for a few days, going over the case and everything that had been done. He said the Fed later assured Dr. Johns that all that could be done had been done.
2: Not that Dr. Johns ever was questioning anything, he just, it, it was kind of giving him a second opinion, which I don't blame him at all. And that's why I was all for it. If FBI, I didn't care who, who cleared it. I, to this day, I don't care who clears it, as long as it gets cleared.
0: When he died in 2002, Dr. Johns still carried around the detective's phone number in his lab coat. So with Megan's parents both dead, it could have been really easy for her case just to go by the wayside. Megan's half-sister, Bridget, had only been nine when her sister was killed. But a few years after their father's death in 2002, Bridget would be moved to learn more about her sister's case and make sure it wasn't being forgotten.
4: Uh, I had been studying, I'd spent a semester in Italy, fell asleep on an airplane, and I dreamed about her. That was in 2005. Um, I was 20. That was in November. And when I turned 21... next February, that spring I went to the police department because I couldn't get that dream out of my head. Do you feel comfortable sharing what the dream was? Uh, No, I don't really even remember. (laughs) I would. I just don't really remember. It was just so vivid. And that was something completely so far out of my mind that popped up. And, um, I just, I felt compelled, I guess, you know, and, and that's, that's really when I started to get angry about this, you know, thinking, my goodness, Someone out there is walking around who has done this horrible thing to this beautiful person, and no one is being held accountable for this.
0: Bridget's meeting with the Irving police in 2006 would be eye-opening.
4: I didn't call before. I just... Waltzed in there with my driver's license. Here's my last name. I'm 21. Is the detective here? Because I'm blood, y'all, you know, kind of thing. Um, And when (laughs) I don't know if he was busy, but as soon as he heard who I was and what I was there for, he, he, you know, let me come up to his office. uh, And I didn't realize it was in retrospect that I realized, wow, you know, he probably stopped whatever he was doing to talk to me for a few minutes and and give me access to these uh, files.
0: So during this meeting, for the first time, Bridget sees a copy of the police report and Megan's an autopsy.
4: And that's when the magnitude of the the brutality of it really set in. Um, I mean, somebody to, to me, looking at this, someone was angry and personal. Any any time you have a stabbing death, you know, it's you're up close. It's not it's not a poisoning. It's not a shooting. You're up close and personal. You're getting blood spatter on you. She put up a fight. She had a lot of defensive wounds, uh, which breaks my heart.
0: Bridget said it was evident to her that whomever killed Megan knew her sister. And for some reason, that person was filled with rage against Megan.
4: Now, that could be drug-fueled anger. It could be alcohol-fueled anger. It could be um, scorned love anger. You know, there are lots of different um, motives, I guess, for being so angry at someone or reasons for being so angry at someone. And that is something that has never, that's been completely elusive as to what would cause someone to be so angry with her. And
0: while learning the gory details behind her sister's death was difficult for Bridget, something else happened during that meeting with Detective Rowan that gave her some comfort. Though their meeting came 12 years after her sister's murder, she said the detective shared something with her that day that she still gets emotional talking about.
4: He told me that this still wait on him. Uh, he had daughters and he said, you know, there are very few cases that I've, I've not been able to, to close. And this is one of them. I said, well, you know, thank you for your work, yada, yada. And right before I left, um, he pulled out his wallet And he pulled a picture of my sister out of his wallet. And that, to me, said more than anything, because, A, he didn't know I was going to be coming in. So it's not like he had prepared for that, you know, um, to prove that he cared. Um. And to carry that around with him 12 years later because he hadn't forgotten this girl. I will be forever grateful to him for that. That
0: Megan's case remains unsolved gnaws at Rowan. When he would later promote up to sergeant, eventually becoming a supervisor of the Crimes Against Persons Unit in 1999, he had Megan's case reviewed. He even had one of his most experienced detectives review the case for anything that he could have missed. So far, it's returned nothing new. We're at the
2: point right now, I feel, unless we get some kind of new information, unfortunately this will go unsolved. And that's the hard hard part of it.
0: When he retired, Rowan took the photo of Megan, a memorial card he'd been given by Dr. Johns, from his wallet and placed it in the case file for any future investigator tackling her case. He closed out his 32-year career with the department with 11 unsolved homicides, eight over which he'd been a supervisor, and three, the investigator.
2: And I asked an older investigator one time, I said, I said, what happens to these? When, When can you move on? He said, you never do. You never do. He said, you'll carry that, you'll carry those unsolved cases the rest of your life.
0: Up until last year, Bridget thought she was the only one still longing for Megan's case to be solved. But then a friend whom she discussed her sister's murder with sent her a Reddit post made by someone who was also interested in getting Megan's case solved.
4: A couple of days later, I got on Reddit and read this post and I was like, looked at the date and it was posted in 2018. And I'm like, who in the world is talking about this case? Again, thinking no one on planet Earth cared. You know, the case has gone cold. Everybody's dead. It's just me. I've kind of put it on the back burner at this point after all this time. You know, having no luck. 13 years ago at the police department myself, who is this person?
0: Turns out, quite a few people were still talking about Megan's case. Kelly, who'd first met Megan at Sunset High School, was among the commenters on the Reddit post. She hadn't forgotten Megan and, in fact, had been calling Irving police periodically over the years inquiring about what was being done in the case. She says they rarely share much with her because she's not Megan's family, but she still calls regularly. She's done her own online sleuthing into possible suspects and created online groups to gather and exchange information about the case. She said it's no longer about seeing someone punished. It's about knowing who would do such a thing and why.
1: If we don't, nobody's going to. And we'll never know. And that's kind of the way I feel about it. If, if, if I don't get something done, it's not ever going to happen.
4: She's even
0: sought the help of Kate Callahan to create astrology birth charts on some of the potential suspects to theorize which might be capable of such a crime. When you don't know who is responsible, she says you grasp at straws. You when know? you don't know, you, you're you suspicious just don't of everyone. You of everyone.
1: Of everyone. And, and that's, you know, you really are. Your friends, it's like, you know, I've scrutinized my friends. Could my friend have done that? I, I don't think my friend could have done that. You don't know. And uh, and they're not, you know, like I said, and then you do dis- distance yourself from all those people because you don't know who the heck did what.
0: And she doesn't plan on stopping. After all, Megan was her close friend, her maid of honor when she married. She feels she owes it to Megan.
1: Like even when I, I look at my wedding pictures, You know, I mean, that's one of the happiest days of my life. And I'm very blessed to have Megan there with me. But it's a little bit of sadness every time I open that book. And I'm going to carry her with me always, you know, because she was a special girl and she deserved much more than she got out of life.
0: Bridget keeps a few of her sister's cremains in a small wooden box along with those of her father. She wants nothing more than for her sister's case to be finally solved, but remains realistic that that day may never come.
4: To have to live with this for the last 25 years and not be held accountable for it, I would hope that that would be some, in some, some way an emotional or a mental prison at some point. Um, I kind of have to believe that. That would weigh on someone, even if it, if, if it doesn't weigh on them to the point of them being able to fess up. Um, but it would also make me very, very sad that, you know, our dad isn't here to, to know that somebody was finally held accountable for that, if, if that ever happens. And that might never happen, you know, and I've kind of resigned myself to the fact that this might never be solved.
0: If you have any information about the murder of Megan Beth Johns, call Irving Police at 972-273-1010 and reference case number 94-48943. Information can also be shared at IPD Crime Tips at cityofirving.org. Thanks for listening. Join us again soon for a new episode of Out of the Cold. Out of the Cold is produced by Steve Wilson, edited by Steve Kaufman, and written and narrated by me, Deanna Boyd.